when I was in high school. Everybody in my school knew Laura Martin very well. Laura was the junior class president. Laura was the co-captain of the pom-pom, I guess they call it drill team, dance team, whatever you want to call it today. She was a straight-A student. Laura was an incredibly pretty girl. Uh, there's really no reason in the world I would have ever known Laura other than from a distance. If she and I ran in two different casts, you know, she was in the aristocracy, the other side of the tracks, the movers and shakers, the popular students. I, on the other hand, were in the, was in the lowly newspaper cast. That was my deal. The only cast worse than this was the concert band cast, and I played third trumpet there, so I was about as bad as you could get. Uh, so there would have been no reason I would have ever known Laura. Well, one day we were in our newspaper meeting and the door was closed and we're trying to figure out what went wrong with the last issue. This was a normal conversation we had. And, and there was a knock at the door and we answered it and Laura walked in in her little pom-pom drill outfit thing. And we obviously thought, you know, she's looking for the student government room. She's in the wrong place. But she said, you know, I think I would like to be a journalist one day. Would it be okay if maybe I wrote an article for the newspaper? Well... We were like, ah, 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 yes, yes, you know, because we thought if we had her on our staff, you know, our cast system is moving up. You know, I mean, we're going we're gonna to rise above maybe the yearbook staff cast even if we could do this. So, yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, within the next several weeks, I mean, Laura and I never became best friends or anything. But in the next several weeks, a lot of my um, prejudice, stereotypical thoughts of the pretty people kind of vanished because as I got to know her a little bit, uh, she was as kind as she was pretty. She had no problem saying hello to me in the hallway. Um, she was an, she was a sharp, just a sharp gal. Well, Laura also worked at the local McDonald's. Now, I'm not going to ask how many of us have worked at McDonald's. I think everybody's worked at McDonald's sooner or later. She was there. Um, November 29th, 1979, she was working. It was the evening shift, and they just closed. And a couple of the students who were working there were on their way out the back door with garbage, and there was a gunman waiting. Well, the, the guy pushed the kids back in, and, and the manager who was in the office saw the ruckus and hit the silent alarm and then went out, and he ordered them open the safe and give them the money, and they did. And then he was trying to, to, to hurt everybody into the walk-in cooler, and suddenly the parking lot was ablaze with, with, you know, squad cars from all directions. And the gunman, for whatever reason, I don't know if he panicked or what, what he did, but he put the gun up to the back of Laura's head and he pulled the, the trigger twice and then he ran out the back door. And the police chased him and he dove into a goodwill receptacle and the police apprehended him from there. Well, you can imagine the school the next day well, when uh, this student, uh, popular student, was, was killed, media everywhere. And, and interviews on news that night from teachers and students and uh, local business owners and politicians and everybody demanding that the full weight of the law be carried out at this point. Matter of fact, I'm reading the newspaper the next day, and one of the apprehending officers said that if he knew that this guy had executed a student, he would have filled that goodwill receptacle with judgment from the end of his shotgun. We know, innately, we just know that murder is about as bad as it gets. You know, number one answer to why should God let you in heaven one day is, well, I've never killed anybody. You know, when we compare ourselves to murderers, I mean, we're bad and all, and we got issues, and we got stuff we should, you know, we're working on and all, but we're no 
murderer. Right? Jesus comes to people who are thinking this in Matthew chapter 5. And he says, really? Are you sure about that? Because my definitions of murder and your definitions of murder may be two different things. And the bottom line is, you're going to be judged one day based on my definition of murder. Therefore, it would behoove you to figure out what my definition is. And so today, we want to look at Matthew chapter 5. If you got your Bibles, turn with me. As Jesus unpacks this sixth commandment. We're going through our series on the Ten Commandments. Jesus is going to look at this one and... Um, let us know what the application is to be. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 of chapter 5. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, way back on Sinai, do not murder. He's quoting Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Several different places he could be quoting on that one, but maybe even Exodus 21. Um, and that's exactly what these folk would have heard. That's right. Don't murder. That's absolutely right. Matter, matter of, of fact, these guys might be thinking that, that this is one law that they have kept. Well, let's, let's look at this tenth command, the sixth commandment for just a second. Back in Exodus chapter 20. Because it's fascinating. Because there are only two words in the Hebrew. Uh, you've got, you know, good old King James, thou shalt not kill. Right? Yours might say, you shall not murder. If you've got the NIV, there's only two words in the Hebrew. It says, no murder. Seventh is no adultery. Eighth, only two words. No stealing. Pretty, pretty clear, pretty straight up. But let's look at the words for just a second. Just giving us some background. Because in Hebrew, there are two words. There's a word for killing and there's a word for murder. Two different words. This word for murder, which is the word you're going to find here is never used for killing animals, for, for sacrifices. It's never used for that. This word that's used here, murder, is never used for capital punishment issues. They've got a word for that. This word murder is never used for taking life in war, even war that Israel was going to be initiating themselves pretty soon. It's not, not that way. Now, now, the Jews would have understood so we're not talking about this morning as capital punishment. We're not talking about just war. Those are important discussions, and the Bible certainly has passages that are pertinent to those discussions. But this passage is not one of them. So we want to look at what the Jews would have understood, what God would have been communicating to them, and how that relates to our life. Now, murder would have been that premeditated homicide. What it is is it's these folk deciding that they are the jury... They are the judge. They are the executioner. Regardless of what God has said, they will determine what the sin is and if the person is really guilty. And if they are, what should be the, the consequences? That's where they're going with this thing. That's the general idea. And so when Jesus is mentioning this on the mountain, you can imagine the people are thinking, OK, I've, this is one that I've kept. And just just, you know, like us. 
You know, well, we would say, well, let me see. Have you, have you had any other gods before him? You know, eh, you know money and time pressure. It's just difficult. But eh, what, what's next? What else do you got for me? Well, okay, you shouldn't covet. Oh, okay, let's keep going. Well, remember the Sabbath day. I don't know if I've ever kept that one. What, what, what else? What else do you have? Well, you know, you should not use the Lord's name in vain. Oh, okay, what else you got? And on and on until we say, don't murder. And we say, bingo, that's my rule. Yes, I kept that one. That's one that I, no, the others, uh, but that's the one I have nailed. I've nailed it. And that's what the folk are thinking on the mountain. Okay, yeah, those folk who I've heard that it was said that they shouldn't kill. And those who, yes, they're going to get judgment one day. Those dogs, they deserve it. And then Jesus, very interesting, verse 22, he says, but I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Well, you can imagine. You just unplug the whole picnic. Everybody light and laughing, joking, goofing around. Kids are playing. They're the small talk. Uh, and you, know, you heard it said you shouldn't kill. Yeah, yeah, they're going to get in trouble. Then he says, but if you're angry with your brother, you've violated the sixth commandment. You're in trouble. Judgment is waiting for you. And there had to be a stunned silence that day as they stopped. What? What? This is one that I thought I was keeping. What? And Jesus is saying, you've taken my law. I mean, who do you think gave it? I was on the mountain with Moses. This was mine. And you've taken it. You've turned it into a bunch of externals. And you're forgetting. You didn't realize that my law goes deeper, much much deeper than that. He goes on to, to well, let me, let me back up for just a second, because this is, this is important. Why do you think this command is given in the first place? Let's, let's bounce on this one for a second. Genesis 9-6. Uh, let me see if we can, if we, can we get that. Yes, wonderful. Thank you, PowerPoint person. Uh, I confuse them sometimes pretty substantially. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Now, just stare at this for a second as to why murder is wrong. Is it wrong? Because we want to protect society. We want to keep anarchy from reigning. We just want to keep make sure everyone's treated fair and they get their right, right day in court. Is that why? No, that's not why we don't murder. We don't murder because everybody was, committed, was created in the image of God. Now, this is, this is huge for us. When you, when you think about this, you've got the four commandments, first four commandments, right? No, no gods before him, no graven images, be careful of his name, take time to regularly uh, reflect on his redemption. Then the fifth command, we, those are all vertical. Then the fifth command, we start to get to horizontal, is, is uh, honor your parents. And the reason why we said that one is there is because God has placed parents in the God position on earth. And as kids are growing up, to the extent that they learn to honor and submit to their parents, the authority structure that God has placed in their life, to that extent they're going to be able to to submit to God. Uh, And here, you see, the reason why we don't murder is not just because people are nice and we want to be kind, but because they're made in God's image. You know, there is a vertical thread running through all of these commands. If you were to spit on the, the picture of the president of the United States, you're not literally spitting on him, right? But you're dishonoring him. When you, when you were to murder a person who's 
created in the image of God, the image of God, you are dishonoring God. That's the reasoning. Not because we don't want to get caught, we don't want to go to jail, we don't want the consequences. Because the person is created in the image of God. Well, Jesus is going to go on here in um, chapter 5. People are quiet. They're silent. They're trying to figure out what he's just said. And just to drive it home, he says, Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, You know what? I've called people a lot of names in my life. And I've called people some terrible things. But I've never called anybody a Raka. I'm all right here. Okay. All right. This one is one I'm doing. Okay. Thank goodness he didn't say some other words. He said rocket. All right. I didn't ever called anyone a rocket. Well, maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. Uh, Let's unpack this one. Because rocket is a very difficult word to translate. Actually, the, the, the translators did not translate it. If you notice, it's transliterated, which basically means they just took the Aramaic word and just spelled the Aramaic word in English. Because they weren't sure how to translate. It's only found one time in, in, in the New Testament. And it's so difficult to translate because it really has two sides to it. One side of the word rock, I mean, the, the word is an assault on someone's intelligence. Okay, It's an assault on someone's intelligence out of a, a heart of an anger. But, but one side of it is deals with how you communicate the message. How what is said is said. The rolling of the eyes, maybe. The deep breathing exercises. The pejorative tone, the belittling sarcasm, how the message is said. Another side of rock is actual translation. It it's, means the word idiot or stupid. We might, we might say, well, you can't say that word in my house, stupid idiot. Well, that's good. That's a start. But, but it would go on to say something like uh, maybe you said, are you so clueless? Can't you figure this out? How many times do I have to tell you? What's wrong? Are you so dense? Let me ask you, have you ever said raka to somebody before? Well, it's important because Jesus says if you have, you're in danger of judgment. You, you violated the sixth commandment, according to Jesus, if you have. This, this is interesting because he's tying our mouths with murder so closely here. And he says the second word he uses is the word fool. Well, now, if raka is an assault on someone's intelligence, fool is an assault on someone's morality. If raka is an assault on their, their being able to, to think properly, uh, uh, fool is, is their assault on their being able to live properly. It's on their motivation. Um, we know in Scripture that fool is not... It has nothing to do with an individual's intelligence, right? It's contrasted with the wise man. The wise man built his house on the rock, and the rock was the word of God. The, the wise man, we recognize that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so what a wise man in Scripture is, is someone who recognizes that there is a God who submits to him, who has the, the fear of God control what he says, control what he does. He, he is uh, living for God's purposes, not his own. In contrast, in Scripture... The fool, Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, maybe not in his words. This is important for us because we would, when we first hear Psalm 14.1, we think, oh, it's these, these atheists in the, in the media who, who mock God. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
But I just wonder how many practical Psalm 14.1 atheists are even here. Where it's an issue of seeing in my heart, never out, out externally. In other words, the fear of God does not control what I say. You want to know what controls what I say? My passions. You want to know what controls what I say? My anger. You want to know what controls what I say? Whether or not I'm going to get caught. See, that's what controls what I say. Fear of God is... That's a fool, according to Scripture. When you call someone a fool, you know what you're doing? You're saying, hypocrite. Thinks he's so godly. Yeah, she puts on a show, but I know really what's in her heart. You ever call anyone a fool? You know, it's interesting. And it's just, as a kid, you know, I was not very good at too many things. But one of the things I was pretty good at was sarcasm, belittling, humiliating words. And I could be creative and weave together a line that could destroy someone internally. And I took great pride in that. When you cut somebody with a knife, we see them bleeding. We drop the knife and we run and we get Band-Aids and we're all taking care of them. But the problem with words is we don't see the damage, right? And so we cut someone inside, and we don't see the damage. So what do we do? We just keep cutting. And other people start cutting. And if the person is and they're trying to maintain any degree of honor, they're acting as if this doesn't hurt them. And so we just keep going after them, creating incredible damage with our words. I mean, if we were to stop, we're not doing this, this inventory, but if we were to stop and we were to look back, do you remember some hurtful things that people have said to you? Yes, you probably do. Because words cut deep. They just cut deep. That's what Jesus is, is mentioning here. That saying raka to someone, saying fool to somebody, qualifies you as a murderer with a murderer's judgment. Well, what Jesus is really trying to drive home to these guys is the difference between behavior modification, this is important for us, and heart transformation. Because in Christianity, it's just easy. It's easy in any religious system. Uh, but to turn this book into nothing but a set of rules where I, I can control um, what I'm supposed to do externally. I know what I need to do to be accepted here. So I know what I need to say and what I probably shouldn't say. I know what I need to think and act like uh, in order to be accepted here. And so I'll do those things. I know what I need to do in school to not be humiliated. And so I'm going to do those things. I know what I need to do at work in order to keep a job. So I'm going to do those things. We, we base so much of our life of this behavior modification where we're just controlling the externals to get what we need. Meanwhile, the depth of our hearts, different issue. Look at what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 17, it says, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And Jesus is saying that it's, it's, uh, murder is not a hands issue. Words are not even a mouth issue. They are a heart issue. Now, a little bit more cryptic phrase, a passage, but a, a great passage. Matthew chapter 12. He drives this home a little bit deeper. 
in verse uh, 33, Matthew 12. It says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is, a tree is recognized by its fruit. And he says in verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that evil men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. What he's he's saying is, I mean, maybe you've done this, or you know other people have done this, right? Where where you're driving, and someone cuts them off, and they say something, and then, oh, especially if the kids are in the car, where did that come from? That, That wasn't me. Well, reality is, that was them, wasn't it? It, it was us. We are like a, a tube of toothpaste. When the pressure gets supplied, what comes out was what was inside all along. You, you, you know, in Scripture, we've got justification, right? Heavy theological terms. It's when we come to know Christ. And then we're going to have glorification one day when we see him face to face. But between justification and glorification, you've got this big distance that the Bible calls sanctification. And here is where we can get mixed up. Because here what's supposed to happen is we're supposed to be looking more and more like Christ. Well, what we do, and sometimes what we train our children to do, is what they've got to do is, is work on the externals. And I'm not saying we shouldn't work on externals. But that's all they're working on. The externals, the externals, the externals. Well, sanctification is only secondarily dealing with those things. Primarily, it deals with heart transformation and we got to stop and ask ourselves my christianity has it been nothing more than an an issue of of working through behavior modification and working on the externals well you know what we need to stop and look into the heart and let christ in and let the holy spirit in and let the, the the messy job of sanctification work itself out because if our heart is transformed you know what out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks so if your heart is transformed what's going to come out I don't have it on the screen, but, but uh, you know it. Romans 12.2 says, Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's Greek. If this verse was in Hebrew, it could very easily say, but be transformed by the renewing of your heart. Because this is a heart issue, is what he's trying to let us know. And so these folk are going to be standing there that day, uh, dumbed silence, And Jesus says, let me give you a case study. Matthew 5. But the case study he gives is fantastic because it assumes what you and I know right now where we sit. You're going to blow this one. You're just going to mess up on this one. Jesus starts off with this case study assuming that that's what's going to happen. He says in verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Now, this text is really lost sometimes on 21st century Gentiles. But keep in mind that these guys were were first century Jewish folk who were committed to living the the Mosaic law 24-7. It was always, it's my life in tune with the law. law. And it really came to its climax that one day a year when they took the trip to Jerusalem. And also keep in mind that who Jesus is talking to, these guys are in Galilee, about 85 miles away from Jerusalem. Also keep in mind that the only place you can sacrifice, the only place you can sacrifice 
is at the altar in Jerusalem. You cannot sacrifice in Galilee. You can't go to the, the local synagogue and sacrifice. There's only one altar. It's down at the temple in Jerusalem. It's the only place you sacrifice. And so what would have done is you would have been looking over your flocks. These guys in Galilee would have been looking over their flocks. And they would have looked for a sheep. And when they found the right one, they would have been taking special care of it. And then it was, when it was time for them to make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would have put a rope around its neck and they would have led it as a lamb to the slaughter, literally. They would have walked to Jerusalem. And when they would have got to Jerusalem, they would have stood in line with all the other pilgrims. And when their time would have came, they would have put their hand on the head of the sheep and they would have confessed all their sins. As the patriarch, I would have confessed the sins of my family. And then if you really believe in God. Now, if you don't, really trust in God, then this is just an empty ritualistic exercise. But if you have faith, then what happens, according to Hebrews and Leviticus, is the sin of you and your family is transferred to that sheep. That sheep's blood will atone for it, cover over. I mean, this is very, very significant. This is a very significant thing, isn't it? This isn't anything to be taken lightly. This isn't anything you can optional deal. Forgiveness we're talking about. This is pretty important. And so, so you're in line. You made the 85-mile track. You got your, your sheep. You're coming up. You're next in line. And all of a sudden you remember Joe back home. And you and Joe, because something's, not, something's not right. And according to the context, probably the reason why it's not right is you said something. You've hurt Joe in some way, and so you know he's ticked off at you because of something that you've done. What are you supposed to do? What do you do with that? Well, Jesus lets us know. What you're supposed to do is leave your gift, go back home, straighten things out, come back. Now, 85-mile walk, that's a long walk. You can imagine this guy's got to be thinking, hang on, hang on, Jesus, wait a minute. We're talking weeks here, maybe months. And if I leave my lamb here, by the time I get back, this thing will be dead of starvation. And, and besides that, I will have missed the holiday. I've got a sacrifice on this day. You said, and, and, and it will be, I will have missed it. And on top of that, what about stewardship of time and energy? I've got to walk all the way back home, 85 miles, and turn around and walk back? Come on. Come How about this? I've got a different plan here. I've been thinking here. How about I go ahead and sacrifice, since I'm right here and all, and then when I get home, I'll look Joe up and, and take care of it. What do you think about that? And what's Jesus say? Jesus says, first, leave your gift at the altar, then go home and take care of things, then come back. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, you, you think I'm first draft in here? You think I didn't think about this? This is what you need to do. And the principle is, 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 is important for us. And here's the principle. Your relationship with God is inextricably tied to your relationship with people. You see this? Your relationship with God is inextricably tied to your relationship with people. Inextricably tied. You can't separate it. Now, we like to think, I do sometimes, my relationship with God is over here, my relationship with people is over here. And because God is, there's no dysfunction in God, right? And he's forgiving, and he's patient, and he's kind. There's nothing bad about God. And whenever I blow it, he's patient with me and forgiving. So, you know, we got a great relationship. But over here, oh, man, oh, different issue altogether because people are who they are, people. Not a whole lot wrong with me, but those guys, it's a mess. And therefore, I don't know, but my relationship with God is good. But right over here, it's just always not so good. And I'm happy with that sometimes. And what he's saying is, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. Your relationship with me and your relationship with others, they're inextricably tied. If your relationship with others is what he's saying here, unless I'm getting this wrong. If your relationship with others is messed up, 
your relationship with me is messed up. I, I don't want to talk to you. So you go take care of it. Well, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty significant. Is it not? My, my goodness, that, that changes things. Now the, now, the principle, we see this all over in Scripture. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Uh, He came and he said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I think we brought this up several weeks ago when we started the series. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He was synthesis of the first four. This is the first and greatest commandment. The guy could have said, wonderful, got it, thanks, I'm out of here. But what does Jesus do? He says, no, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. The second one is like it. In other words, I can't just tell you one. I've got to tell you both. The second one is inextricably tied to it. You can't have one without the other one. And the other one is love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands, the whole law is tied. Everything is, is, is connected to these two commands. Uh, we find in James, this is interesting. It says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. James knows Genesis 9, 6, doesn't he? Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers, this should not be. In 1 John 3, it says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he who has given us us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, now stop for just a second. I'm going to assume that this is true. But if this is true, how many times have we been liars? We're claiming we love God. But over here, right? People, it's not... Don't love them. Don't love them. I think we can be self-deceived pretty clearly because John would tell us, at that point, you're a liar. You really don't understand love for God. That's, that's pretty significant, isn't it? You can imagine why the folk on Jesus' day would be standing there going, the one command that I thought was so easy, I break this one all the time. Jesus, how? Okay, I go back home. I leave my gift. I go back, I do the 85-mile trek, and I find Joe. How do I fix this? And, and, and Jesus gives us a uh, little parable just to show us the, the uh, urgency. Verse 25. So settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. We don't want to read into this something that Jesus is not saying. We want to interpret this aspect here in the whole context. And all Jesus is letting us know is, you and I, because he knows us, we might think, well, I'll think about that. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting thing. He's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. This is urgent. Deal with it now. Put yourself in the story for a minute. You're going to court, and for whatever reason, you're driving to court, and the guy that's taking you to court is, is in the driver's seat. He's steering. You're just a couple minutes away from the courthouse, and you guys are upset at each other. But you realize you're in the wrong, and you realize there's an awful lot of evidence that's stacked up against you. And you realize that when the judge sees this evidence, you're in all kinds of trouble. 
I mean, this might be just your last few minutes of freedom. You're never going to see your family again, no more freedom again. You're in, you're, you're in hot water. But you also realize that this guy driving, if he, if he would not press charges, this thing would go away. You've got two minutes before you get to the courthouse. What are you doing? I know what I'm doing. This is, I'm, I'm a prideful person, but I'm putting it aside at this point because I need to ask this man's forgiveness and, and do restitution and do anything I can possibly do to fix it because this is urgent. Because in just a couple minutes, I'm at the courthouse and I'm in, I'm in dead then. So I've got to fix this now. And that's what Jesus is saying is fix it now. You know, we were in uh, Florida several years ago. We saved up five years to go to, to Disney World. And by the time we got down there, uh, my youngest son, Drew, first night, had a, woke up screaming with his stomach. We took him to the ER appendix. So, so we're, we're in the county hospital because we didn't know where we were. And my wife takes Andrew into the triage station with the, with the nurse. And I'm out in the waiting room sitting with about 25, 30 people. And this is the county hospital in downtown Orlando Friday night. I mean, these guys, uh, I'm looking around. These guys all needed medical attention. I mean, we didn't have any just headache people. These guys were all gunshot. I mean, there's just people were bleeding. It was just, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to be here all night. These guys look rough. The next thing I see is Drewy is on a gurney wheeling past me through the doors because they thought his appendix burst. When your appendix bursts, you know, it just spills all kinds of toxic uh, bacteria laden stuff throughout your whole system. Three to four hundred people die in the United States each year because of a burst appendix. You don't wait. Suddenly, if the appendix is burst, that person's moving up on the triage list. And what, what, what Jesus is saying is, is you treat this like a burst appendix. You, you, don't, you don't say, uh, well, you know what, I'll take care of it. If my appendix bursts, I'll take care of it you know, after this week. This is a real busy week at work. Yeah, I'll deal with it in a little bit. See, I've got little Sally's recital that I need to go to for a while. No, we're putting all that stuff aside. I want to see all the future Sally's recitals. And therefore, I'm going to go to the doctor now if I've got a burst appendix. Jesus is saying, if you've got a burst relationship... It's spilling toxic stuff all through your system and their system. Deal with it now. So how do you deal with it? I think it's understanding a little bit of uh, when you go find Joe, uh, of what an apology is. And just to understand the big picture. I have sinned. I did the dumb thing. But they have to pay the consequences. They didn't do it. They were just enjoying life, but I did something stupid, dumb, sinful, and they're the ones who had to pick up the slack, who had to deal with the pain, who had to, to, to pay the debt, even though I didn't have to, but I did it. When I apologize, I'm going to them, I'm saying, I recognize that, and I recognize on your internal ledger, next to my name is a lot of red ink. Would you erase that red ink? That's a big ask, isn't it? That's what an apology really is. Here's what an apology is not. An apology is not an opportunity to defend self. I'm, I'm really sorry, but I've been under so much stress. And anybody else who has to deal with what I had to deal with would have done the same sort of thing. But I'm sorry. That's not an apology, right? Or an apology is not an opportunity to blame somebody else. Yeah, yeah, I, I blew it here. But if she wouldn't have said what she said, then I would not have said an That's not an apology. An apology is not an opportunity to try to coerce the other person into an apology. You know, I'm sorry, but you hurt me so bad when you did this. Is that an apology? That's not an apology. Uh, 
an apology recognizes sin. This is why relationships are just really messy. Because by the time they get done talking, you know, we're guilty of starting World War II. And so, we're, we're, we, so we just want to reject all of it. Because there's some mistruth in there. We're going to reject the whole thing. But, but if we were to stop and in honesty and discernment, listen and look and see how much of that is my stuff. And then own it. And then go and apologize legitimately and sincerely for what I have done. Therein is the apology. And apology has got to be sincere. Many years ago, there was a uh, person I'm going to call Steve, not, not, not his real name. And I offended Steve pretty substantially. Now, if I'm not going to get into the details. But if I was to tell you, most of you would go, oh, you wouldn't be going, oh, it's not, not nothing that huge. Okay, but, it, but so I, I offended Steve. So I, I, I think, I'm thinking, oh, he's a big boy. He'll deal with it. Piece of cake. He'll forget. Not a big issue. Next day at church, okay, I'm standing in the back. Coming through. One's coming through. How are you? Good sermon. Nice to see you. Know how you feel. Anyhow, nice hat, whatever. And all of a sudden, Steve comes through. And I put out my hand. And he, he kind of glares at me and walks by. Go to my office, I'm thinking, the baby, for crying out loud. It's not a big thing, and where's the spiritual maturity here? And this wasn't that big, and I can't believe it, and all the stuff I have to deal with, and I can't believe it, on and on and on on. But I took the high road, I just want you to know. I didn't call him up and chew him out like I was thinking about I should probably do. I didn't do that road, I was going to be nice, proud of me, right? So I thought, okay, I'm just going to let it go, and go a week, and, and Steve will be better. Well, next Sunday, okay. By the way, Steve did not come to any of the meetings, the ministry teams we were on together because he knew I'd be there this past week. But so the next Sunday, you know, people are coming through. How are you? I'm fine. Nice hat. Whatever. And all of a sudden, Steve's coming through. Glares at me, walks by. Go back to my office. I'm going, okay, this is just not going to go away. All right. I'll do the right thing because that's just the type of person I am. So I call him up. Okay, Steve, your baby. Okay, listen, here's the deal. I'm sorry I did this to you, and I, I'm just, I'm sorry, okay? Life is hard, and I, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And I'll never forget Steve's words. He said, no, I won't forgive you. And he hung up. I didn't really expect that. Okay, okay. Well, first I was judging this guy calling him fool and rock and several other things. But as the week went on, and as I tried to pray, uh, I was convicted huge. And as I put myself in his situation, and I saw what I had done, uh, my negligence, my insensitivity, um, I could really feel uh, some of the hurt and pain that I caused this guy and really could see what it was doing and he wasn't coming he was almost he was he was stopping any of the ministry teams where we were uh, connecting and so I, I called him up several days later and i said as sincerely as i as i could steve i'm so sorry you know this week and i shared with him how god had been dealing uh, with me and in my heart and i went through the whole issue again and i said you know what i wouldn't have forgave me last time either because that was incredibly insincere but i'm telling you right now i just hurt uh, brother i miss their fellowship and um would you please forgive me and his answer to me was no i won't forgive you and he hung up what do you do well perhaps you've had situations like that what do you do your, your apology's got to be sincere and then if that kind of thing happens. You pass the ball. It's a deal I learned from 
Josh McDowell, a massive conference years ago. I called him up several hours later and I said, Steve, listen, I know I'm the last one you want to hear from. And I'm telling you, brother, I would do anything I could to go back in history and to fix stuff. I'd pay any restitution I could pay. If you can think of something, please let me know. And I know you can't forgive me right now. You've told me that. And that's... But when you can forgive me, will you let me know? Goodbye. And then I hung up. Several months later, uh, he gave me a call. And he uh, said he, he forgave me. Now, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Uh, but Jesus is reminding us, you and me, that we've got to try because our relationship with God is inextricably tied to our relationship with people. It, 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 it's, it's connected. We, we can't separate them as much as we would want to. And so let me a- ask you, as we talk this morning, the Holy Spirit brings some name to your mind. Some relationship maybe long ago, maybe pretty recent, uh, where you know you may have said some things, you've done some things. You need to go back because Jesus would say, don't deceive yourself. Your relationship with me is tied to, to your relationship with others. And if this, this over here area is, 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 is hurting and it's your fault, as much as you might try to deceive yourself, this area over here is not good. I want you to go take care of this first then come back and worship me because your relationship with me is inextricably tied to your relationship with others. Would you pray with me? Again, Lord, this is uh, an area where I can't wait to get to heaven for, where we don't have to deal with these things anymore in our relationships. Sin doesn't enter in. And I know my brothers and sisters, I'm assuming they're a lot like me, where things are said and Pride is embraced, and just winning the argument is the chief goal. And Lord, we don't want to have relate a relational graveyard in our backyard. We don't want to be people who have hurt and hurt and hurt and don't care. God, I pray for any relationships here today that are represented that need to be restored. Lord, would you do it? Because, God, I admit, we admit that this is beyond our discipline. This is beyond our self-control. That if your Holy Spirit doesn't work in our heart and give us the boldness and give us the words, if your Holy Spirit doesn't work in the heart of another, uh, this is just going to go nowhere. God, would you guide us? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give direction even uh, now, this day? Remind us of the urgency, not something to be put off. And God, I would pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here. At this point in life, God, before you call us home, would you help us and show us to focus on the transformation of our heart, the work your Holy Spirit wants to do in us, and not simply our our behavior, our actions. And God, we would pray that even this week, your will would be done in this regard as we go into our worlds that you have us, our works, our families, 
our relationships, you know the, the responsibilities we have in so many ways. Would you give wisdom and direction? And God, may we be people who live the sixth commandment in a deeper reality even this week in Jesus' name. Amen.